Well, good morning, Quarterstone. I uh, add my welcome to that of Nate's, and I hope you're um, doing well on this Lord's Day. I'm grateful to be able to uh, connect with you in this way, despite the limitations. It somehow makes us feel connected versus just that uh, kind of void that has been going on now for maybe five or six weeks. So great, great to be with you again. I hope today will be helpful. I want to invite you to Acts chapter 16. Um, I took uh, the liberty of, before I jump back into James, because hopefully I'll be able to run there for a while, and we were still on the subject of humility um, when uh, I left you last time in person. Um, last week, we talked about the purposeful providence that Nathan just referenced, the fact that this is this COVID-19 reality is a God-ordained reality, and it is purpose, much like the challenges in John chapter 11 we noted last week, uh, to promote the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And uh, this sickness is not unto death, Jesus said, but for the glory of the Son of God, so people could see uh, quality, character, reality about Jesus Christ that would cause them to consider him and elevate the God who sent him. Furthermore, it was designed, as we noted last week, that purposeful providence of John 11, and I'm going to argue no different than today in the f- factors and challenges that we all face. It was also that you might believe. He delayed two days to the end that the disciples might believe more that their faith would grow. And so part of this purposeful providence is not just to magnify Jesus Christ, though it is foundational and central. It is also to grow your faith. Um, This should be a season of uh, sanctification, increased conviction, and uh, priorities adjusted and calibrated. Uh, You're just more confident in the God you worship and serve. As a, pro- as a product of this unrivaled and unprecedented season. And then the third thing we highlight is not just about your faith growing. It's about the faith of unbelievers who see the reality of God on display. Lazarus coming out of the grave, Lazarus come forth, became a, a monumental uh, expression, um, validation of the person of Jesus Christ and his unrivaled capacity. And so when that occurred, uh, Lazarus coming forth from the grave, it triggered in the lives of some who witnessed it confidence in who Jesus was and the claims that he was making. Many believed, the scriptures say. And so kind of piggybacking on that, I wanted to just make an installment this morning about how to maximize the the opportunity you have to put Jesus on display, to put God on display. And my big idea today, and it's one that's been on my heart really all year long here at the university, is being a compelling Christian, being the kind of Christian that makes a non-Christian consider wanting wanting to become one uh, because of what they witness and the way you live and the way you act, the way you talk, uh, the honor that you uh, display as it relates to your pursuit of Jesus Christ, your Christianity. Uh, Today, I want to punctuate something in that zone of being a compelling Christian as it relates to being the kind of person that would cause an unbeliever, somebody in your neighborhood, maybe somebody in your family as you're sheltered at home or as you congregate together, maybe even on Zoom, 
people you interact with, being the kind of Christian allows people to see an undeniable evidence of God in your life. Uh, I'm going to begin in Acts chapter 16, then we're going to go to the Old Testament for an illustration. But the idea is this, a compelling Christian is someone who lives in such a way that people get to see the power of the living God. They get to see God in you, God toward you, and God through you in such a compelling way that it would cause them to consider the reality of a God that they may have never considered. Real Christianity is not religiosity, but an undeniable, you can't explain this away, reality. There must be a God testimony. And I want to point you to Acts chapter 16, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want to make the big idea point out of this section about compelling Christianity, because here you see God on display. You see God on display through Paul and Silas. You see God on display in such a way that an unbeliever, a pagan jailer, says, what do I have to do to experience that? Acts chapter 16, verse 22, just follow along. And this is after uh, Paul has released a demonically oppressed uh, young woman uh, from her her, uh, uh, control of the enemy. And uh, she lost her kind of supernatural capacity, not God-like capacity, but demonically inspired capacity to serve the ends of those who were employing her. And they were frustrated. So they uh, threw Paul and Silas in jail, verse 22, and the crowd rose up together against them because Paul and Silas had affected their economic engine. Uh, so the crowd rises up against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. So they're going to be persecuted for their work on behalf of God. Verse 29, or verse 23, rather. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. <clears throat> And he, having received such a command, threw them in to the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. So not just the apostles, but every prisoner. Verse 27, and when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped, which means he was scared that because of his failure as a jailer, he would be responsible and ultimately executed. So he was going to presume that and take care of that outcome. So he's going to kill himself. Verse 28, but Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Not just Paul and Silas, but all the prisoners implied in that is an impact of Paul and Silas and their leadership on the rest of the prisoners uh, by virtue of their presence and, and person and their behavior in that situation. Verse 29 
And he, the jailer, called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, key words, he fell down before Paul and Silas. So he's personally impacted by the reality of a God he saw through them by virtue of perhaps the the singing and the praising and the praying. In other words, how they suffered in service to God. They, they behaved in honor and good conduct. And then there was this earthquake expression, power of God, doors blown open, shackles falling off, an undeniable supernatural display of God. And it caused this jailer, verse 30, he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And I'm arguing that the display of God in Paul and Silas's life through this supernatural conduct, praise and in the midst of difficulty, honor when they could have escaped, and then this power of God on vivid display caused an unbelieving pagan man to say, what do I have to do? I want what that is. I want to engage what I've observed. And that's the big idea that I want to park in and plant in your heart today as a Christian. In the midst of COVID-19, a kind of shelter at home incarceration. You're with people, you're engaging in community, maybe family members and friends. And I want to encourage you to put God on display in such a compelling way that people go, what must I do to experience that? How can I enjoy that? So to that end, I want to invite you now to the heart of our study today, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 16. I want to begin with a a famous verse that I believe is the foundation for a big God display. On the stage and canvas of your life, people seeing God in such a way that it impacts and influences them to consider God. Second Chronicles chapter 16, here's the famous verse. And we're going to read the verse, and then we're going to look at the person to whom that verse was directed. Look at him by way of an example, an Old Testament illustration of a compelling God person who by virtue of this truth put God on display and led people who he influenced to live in a way that caused God to be on display. So here's the principle. Then we're going to look at the practice in an Old Testament illustration of the third king of Judah after Solomon, the kingdom divided. This is King Asa. And this is Hanani the seer, a prophet of God who comes to him and says these words on behalf of God, punctuating a principle at the end of his life that is to be a foundation for being a compelling follower of God. Verse 9, Hanani the prophet to Asa the king of Judah. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth that he, God, may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. The foundational principle that is pointed out here by the inspired, by the Holy Spirit, prophet of God, is the invitation 
the quality, the character that a big God is looking for is a heart that is completely his. This verse says that he, God, is ceaselessly searching eyes to and fro, here, there, and everywhere, looking for something, not for an American idol, not for uh, somebody to promote in places of position, but to unceasingly search for an occasion and an opportunity whereby he can display upon his faithful, his power for his glory and for the impact of those in the world around those he is blessing in that way. Here's a question for you. Have you ever wondered why there are not more God-obvious moments? Why Christians often live weak, natural, and struggling lives? It strikes me that part of the reason for the impotence sometimes or the lack of impact is the result that people don't get to see enough of the God who is undeniable and compelling. It strikes me that his passion, in other words, the way of God, is a searching way, looking for the part person whose heart is completely his, so that he can display his unrivaled glory, so he can support them and bring glory to himself through them, so that people who don't know God will get to see God, so that the people of God will get to experience God. That's what God's like. One of the theological foundations of any Christian is to recognize that God never changes. He's immutable. The way he was in the Old Testament, he still is. And this is the immutable God communicating, I have a passion. My passion and my heart hunger, what I long for is a wholly devoted to me person upon whom I can display my goodness and greatness and display my glory to those who witness that goodness and greatness. That's the desirability of God. And my encouragement today is to be such a person, to focus on this shelter at home time as a season to grow at home time, to become that kind of Christian so that the stage of your life and the canvas of your life, if you will, the, the backdrop can be a vivid display of a God who's real that'll cause those who witness that to say, I want to experience that. I want to taste that. So turn back a couple of pages to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. And I want to unpack in the time that we have a completely his heart. So this is for the message. This message is for the person who wants to see God show himself strong. This is for the person who wants to put on an undeniable, this must be God display in their life so that people see an unrivaled reality in the King of Kings. This is for the person who wants to see a big God in a bigger way. This is for the person who wants to be satisfied as a follower of God and fulfill the passion of God by being a person upon whom God blesses and honors in a compelling way. The story begins in chapter 14. King Asa is the son of Abijam, who was the son of Rehoboam. Solomon was king and Rehoboam followed him to the throne. 
And as a consequence of his decision to press and oppress God's people, 10 tribes of the 12 separated under the leadership of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So you have 10 northern tribes, two southern tribes. Benjamin and Judah ruled by Asa. Rehoboam was the king when that separation occurred. Abijam, he ruled 17 years. His son Abijam came to the throne and he ruled three years. Rehoboam, the Bible says, did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Bible says of Abijam, it's summary statement about his leadership. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And as a consequence, the people of God endured the pain of failing to follow God because of a leader who did evil in the sight of God. And then along comes the third king of Judah, the grandson of Rehoboam, Asa, whose name means healer. Listen to the Bible, 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 1. So Abijah, that's Asa's father, slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and his son Asa became king in his place. The land was undisturbed for 10 years during his days. Now, I don't want you to jump over that. That's an important thing. If you go back to chapter uh, 12, At the end of the story of Rehoboam, verse 15 concludes this way, and there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. So the northern tribes, 10 of them, led by the idolater Jeroboam, was constantly in conflict with the southern tribes, Judah. And then it says in chapter 13 of 2 Chronicles, As Abijam comes to the throne, and he rules for three years, verse 2, at the end of verse 2, it says, and there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. So the pattern was of constant conflict. There was no peace. There was the entire context was driven by the unsettled realities of insecurity, conflict, war, and loss. People died, people were dying. Pressure was constant and unrelenting. And the Bible says Asa became king in his place and the land was undisturbed for 10 years during his days. Now watch this, verse two. And Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. Now, how did he do that? Look at the explanation, verse 3, 4. He removed the foreign altars and the high places. He tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the asherim. So this is the paraphernalia, if you will, of idol worship. The asherim were uh, idols of a fertility goddess of the pagan nation. So Israel had uh, accumulated the the worship of, of pagan gods and Asa comes to the throne, he does right in the sight of the Lord, and he removes those foreign altars in high places. That's the the place of worship for these pagan deities. Verse 5, and he removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah. So it's comprehensive, this cleaning campaign, this removing the idols campaign. Now watch the end of verse 5, and the kingdom was undisturbed under him. So one of the ways God showed himself strong 
which is going to be punctuated at the end of Asa's life, is by bringing a supernatural peace in a world that didn't know any peace. 17 years under Rehoboam, constant war. Three years under Abijam, constant war. Now, at the end of Abijam's life, he had a significant victory against Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and that victory brought peace, and that peace lasted 10 years because of the life of Asa. He did right and he did good. He had a heart for God. And God displayed what he always displays, strength toward those whose heart is rightly related to him. Verse 6, but not just peace. Verse 6, he built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed. Okay, so that undisturbed peace season allowed for productive prosperity. And there was no one at war with him, verse 6, during those years Watch the end of verse 6, because the Lord had given him rest. So a rightly related to God heart, a completely his heart, enjoys strength from God. And one of the ways God provides strength is through undisturbed peace, supernatural peace, and the opportunity for productive prosperity. Verse 7, for he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars, because it's not going to be a permanent peace, but a significant peace. Verse 7, the land is still ours because we have, watch the words, because we have sought the Lord our God, we have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and they prospered. Here's my big idea today. Compelling Christianity is God on display Christianity. God on display Christianity is having a heart that's completely his that allows the God of heaven whose eyes are searching, passionate and desiring to display his goodness and strength on behalf of anyone whose heart is completely his. In Asa, he found such a man. He found a man whose heart was to do right and to do good. And here's a key thought, and a heart to seek the Lord. And not only for him individually to seek the Lord, but to promote the seeking of the Lord with the people that he led and influenced. And the consequence of that was an unrivaled decade of peace, undisturbed, prosperity, productivity, blessing, and benefit. A God thing as a consequence of a man who sought God in a way that honored God. Compelling Christianity is having a heart like that. So you can enjoy a supernatural provision of peace, an opportunity to do what otherwise you couldn't do, that God can put his capacity on display. Chapter 15, which is where I want to go now, is the theology of that, the practice of that. That's the big principle. That's the product of living out that principle, blessing and benefit. Chapter 15 is a prophet, a different one than chapter 16, speaking to Asa as he comes home from a big battle that was meant to be an example of God showing himself strong. As a matter of fact, let's read the story, verses 9 through 15 of chapter 14, and I'll set up 15, chapter 15 for our study today. Now, 10 years of peace, 
God's blessing, supernatural. And then an enemy comes, verse 9. Now Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them, that's Asa and Judah, with an army of a million men. Now, in the previous verse, it tells us Asa's army was 300,000 from Judah, 280,000 from Benjamin. So he had 580,000. They were valiant warriors, but they're not a million. The enemy, the Ethiopian, Zerah, comes out with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. And he came to Merishah, verse 10. So Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zephathah at Merishah. So you've got an enemy coming against Judah with a million-man army, great capacity. And the 580,000 underneath of Asa's leadership comes out to meet face-to-face in a battle wartime confrontation. Now watch verse 11. And Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides thee to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. It's not like Asa had nothing. He had 580,000. But the issue was, I'm not dependent on that group. First of all, it is a lesser number, significantly lesser, nearly half. But I'm dependent. We have no strength not some strength. I recognize I have no strength without you. We have come out and those who have no strength. So we're asking you to help us. O Lord, our God, for we trust in thee and in your name have come up against the multitude of Judah. Thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. So he doesn't call his warriors to war. He calls out to God to go to war on their behalf, which is then the consequence of that, verse 12. So the Lord routed, notice the key words, the Lord, that's Yahweh. He routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover, for they were shattered before the Lord and before his army, and they carried away very much plunder. Watch verse 14. And they destroyed, that's Asa's army, all the cities around Gerar for the dread. Here's a key statement. For the dread, the fear of the Lord had fallen on them. So the power and capacity and regard for the God of Judah was on full display, routed the enemy, and resulted in a plunder and a spoil and a victory that was overwhelming. And they despoiled all the cities, verse 14, and there was much plunder in them. In other words, they got very rich from the possessions of the enemy that became theirs through their victory. Verse 15, they also struck down those who owned livestock. They carried away large numbers of sheep and camels, and they returned to Jerusalem. Big victory, 10 years of peace interrupted by this massive encounter This victory of a heart completely toward God and completely available to God that cried out for help from God, and God showed himself strong. This is a vivid example of 2 Chronicles 16.9. This is what I do. I'm looking for that kind of man. I'm looking for that kind of people, and I'm going to display my power in a way that causes the enemies of God 
and pagans without God to fear God. Now, as Asa comes back from that victory, after 10 years of peace and this encounter, the prophet of God, whose name is not mentioned anywhere else, punctuates the practices and the principles that promote in the life of any follower of God, the big display of God. So chapter 15, and here are the principles. I'm going to give you four things today to think about if you want to be a heart that's completely his. Number one, you need to have a get after it heart. Number two, you need to have a get rid of it heart. Number three, you need a stay with it heart. And number four, you need to have a deals with it heart. A completely his heart is a gets after it heart, a gets rid of it heart, a stays with it heart, and a deals with it heart. And you're going to see that in these chapters that we're about to highlight. And we're just going to highlight for the sake of time today. A gets after it heart. And and this is in chapter 15 and chapter 16 to the verse that we read. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking, searching for the man whose heart is completely his, so that he can show himself, God, strong on his behalf. So Azariah speaks under the power and leadership and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to call this seek theology. A completely his heart follows this path. Verse 1, now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded, who was a prophet. Verse 2, and he went out to meet Asa, so he's coming back from his victory, and says to him, listen to me, Asa. In other words, you've had this big victory. I don't want you to miss this. You already know this, but I want to galvanize this. Your victory is a product of this principle and these practices. Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. So it's not just for the king. It's for all the people of God. The Lord is with you when you are with him. When you walk with him, he walks with you. Verse 2 goes on to say, And if you seek him, he will let you find him. And if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now listen to what the prophet's saying. The foundation stone for a heart that is completely his, that invites the bombastic power of God, that brings peace, productivity, prosperity, blessing, benefit, begins with a heart that seeks God. A completely his heart is a heart that sincerely and diligently seeks the Lord. It walks with him and it desires to be with him and to be where he is. The the Hebrew word darash used here for seek is used of Moses in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 16, and it's, it has this flavor, this nuance, if you will, of diligently seeking, carefully seeking, proactively seeking. A completely his heart is a heart that seeks God sincerely and diligently. It wants to be with him. It's purposeful. It is a sincere search. So God searches for the person who's searching for him. That's the idea. 
Sikh theology begins with a decision to say, I want to seek God and be with God. That's what Azariah is punctuating for Asa. You do that, God's with you. You walk with God proactively like that, he's going to walk with you. The second thing that you notice in this comes out of verse 3. And for many days, Israel was without the true God and without teaching a teaching priest and without law. Now watch verse 4. As a consequence of really no law, no revelation from God, nobody to teach the revelation of God. A searching for God heart not only is a heart that seeks him diligently, but it seeks him biblically. In other words, there is revelation to govern and guide the searching heart. They didn't have that. And therefore, verse 4, they were in their distress. They were in their distress because they didn't have the law of God. They didn't have people leading them in the ways of God. They weren't walking with God. They weren't searching for God. They weren't seeking him. They had forsaken him. And as a consequence, verse 4, they were in distress. And they turned to the Lord God of Israel in that distress. Watch verse 4. And they sought him. So here's a second or a third thought about seek theology. Number one, it's diligently seeking. Number two, it is biblically or truth-based seeking. Thirdly, it's desperate seeking. It is desperately seeking. It's recognizing that if I don't have him, I'm busted. If I don't have his word to guide me, if I don't have his presence and power in my life, I'm in distress. Now, listen, that's not always obvious, but it's always true. And so seeking is the consequence of recognizing the desperate condition you have or are in if you do not seek him. And if you do seek him diligently, I'm going to say desperately dependent. Look at verse 4, and he will let you find him. And he, God, let them find him in their desperate search for him. Listen, the heart that is completely his is driven to pursue him diligently, pursues him biblically, and pursues him desperately. It was as an example of Asa and God's people, and Azariah the prophet is punctuating that. Verse 5 points us back to the reality they experienced prior to that seeking and God big display. Verse 5, and in those times, those desperate times, those distressing times, when you weren't seeking God, when the people of Judah did not have a priest or a prophet to unpack and teach the words of God and reveal the words of God, in those times, verse 5, there was no peace to him who went out or from those who came in, for many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. And nation was crushed by nation, city by city, for God troubled them from with every kind of distress. All right, now don't miss this. The pain and the injury 
of unrelenting distress and disturbance, the crushing reality of a life that's without God, lived independent of God, without the word of God, without following and seeking after God, it's painful. Not peace, but pain. And Azariah is saying, listen, don't forget the way it was. Rehoboam, Abijam. When you came to the throne, you initiated, you, you invited the people, chapter 14, to seek the Lord. You depended desperately on the Lord, and God showed himself strong in this recent victory. Don't miss this. God is to be sought diligently, biblically, desperately, because your condition prior was so painful without that priority. And it is to be sought courageously, verse 7. But you be strong and do not lose courage for there's reward for your work. Now listen, when he came to the throne, he initiated reforms. They removed a lot of stuff, high places, uh, pagan idols and symbols. But there was more work to be done. And Azariah is saying, do all the work. Be courageous. Don't lose heart. Keep doing what you've been doing. It is the critical key to success. Why? Because those who seek the Lord need to seek God courageously because it's not popular and it's not easy. When you have a completely his heart, you've got to deal deal with stuff that's difficult. Things that are incongruous with a completely his heart. Let me give you the next principle. It shows up in verse 8. And this hints at the second big idea. It's not only a gets after at heart like that, desperately, diligently, biblically, courageously, but it's a get rid of at heart. Because a person who seeks the Lord with a completely his heart does it exclusively. God first and God only. Watch verse 8. When Asa hears the prophet, He does what anybody who gets it would do. Now, when Asa heard these words, verse 8, and the prophecy which Azariah the son of Oded the prophet spoke, he took courage. In other words, he believed it to be true, and it strengthened his heart, and he destroyed. He removed all the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. And he then restored the altar. That's a reference to the altar of God. So there's this exclusive reality that he was going to deal with anything that competed with the ways or the things of God. He got rid of it. Verse 9, he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim and Manasseh and Simeon who had, who had resided with them for they had defected. So those are from the northern kingdom. They'd come south because they saw the God orientation of the southern tribes as opposed to the pagan orientation of the northern tribes. For many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. Now I want to punctuate that. They saw a big God on display. They saw a God who cannot be denied on the stage of Asa's life, a completely his heart, God showing himself strong. And these were pagan idolaters from the northern tribes who were witnessing what God was doing through Asa. 
And they said, we want to be a part of that. We're, we're going to leave our tribes, our families, the northern kingdom, and we're coming south. We want to be with you because of the compelling display of God being with him. Let me just pause for a minute. That's my heart's desire for us during this season where we're kind of under assault. And we're in this unique stage of life where we're on display, sometimes in close quarters at home with with our families, perhaps with our relatives and friends, perhaps through Zoom. We're dealing with life in a way that people get to see what a Christian is, who a God follower is. And hopefully they're going to get to see a God who really is not just a religion they've heard about, but a reality that they're seeing on vivid display. And it will cause some of them to go, you know what? God's with them. He has what I don't have. He experiences what I don't experience. I don't taste that where I live. I don't taste that in the the world in which I live. I want to experience that. I'm coming that way. So there is a seeking God, which is exclusively, and it includes a let's get rid of the junk stuff. I'll circle back to that in a minute. Continue with me. So it's an exclusive, unrivaled worship for God, verse 9. So he gathers everybody, They, verse 10 rather, they assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of Asa's reign. Now watch verse 11. This exclusive worship is lavish worship. And they sacrificed to the Lord that day 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep from the spoil they had brought. So the victory gifts were offered to God in generous, lavish worship. You know, I'm going to argue by way of example that it completely his heart, that God puts his glory on display through and in and toward, is a heart that's generously and lavishly worshiping him with the assets entrusted to them through the blessings that he gives. All the stuff that was offered to God was the product of the work of God. And the things that God had given by his miraculous power, his supernatural display, They were giving back to God in lavish worship as a consequence of saying, we buy in our heart, it's for you. It's an exclusive worship and it's a lavish worship. It's exclusively seeking God and it is lavishly worshiping God. Verse 12, here's another principle related to a get after it heart. A heart that gets after it is a heart that commits to God formally. It seeks God in a formal way, collectively and personally. Watch verse 12. This is very interesting, this next little section. And they, the people of God, entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, their, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and soul. This is a formal, in public, undeniable resolution, verbally affirmed to say, we're in. This is a get after at heart that has a formal commitment attached to it. This is a group of people standing up and saying, we believe 
We want to be what God wants us to be, and we're all in. And we're committing verbally and obviously. Not part of us, but all of us. Verse four, verse 13. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. Now listen. A completely his heart makes a formal public declaration. I'm for God. I'm all in for God. It's not private. It's not secret. It's obvious. And it's serious. I mean, this is very interesting, at least to me. And and I think it goes like this. Listen, a public declaration is powerful. Why did they say it publicly like this? Well, I experienced that in my own life. There's certain commitments that I I make and I make them before the Lord. Sometimes I make them privately. Um, the example recently, you know, COVID-19 and someone, my, my son-in-law said to me yesterday, COVID-19 refers to the 19 pounds you're going to gain during the shelter at home. You're just going to eat more than you normally eat. You're going to gain weight. Well, that certainly would apply to me as a consequence of the change in activity level and the opportunity to go to the fitness center and all of that and food being available. Weight gain. And I'm particularly attracted to uh, Trader Joe's has these cheese puffs. And you just can't eat a cheese puff. You got to eat many cheese puffs. And I told Karen the other day when I was in the act of cheese puffs, I said, Karen, I've got to stop eating these. I want you to be my accountability. I am publicly going on record. I am personally going on record. This, done with this. I've got to set this aside. And I'm making myself accountable to you. And this is serious. Now, listen, in this case, it's not only a public declaration, which strengthens my resolve because I have accountability. But a seek him heart says, I'm in, I'm letting you know I'm in, and this is serious. Now, in this case, obviously, it's very serious. It's so serious that if you don't follow, it's catastrophic consequences. And the point I want to make out of this verse as it relates to seek God theology, a completely his heart, it's a, it's a commitment of the heart that's not only whole and complete with no corners or closets, it's publicly, it's formally, it's obviously, and it's seriously committing myself to him. This is a radical conviction with sincere consequences. This is a heart that's his. It says, I'm in, and I want you to hold me accountable. I'm holding you accountable. Let's do this together, because this is not natural in our humanity. So not only that, it's something you do, this pursuit of God, completely his heart is a heart that seeks him passionately. Just, just watch the words, verse 14. Moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, with horns. And all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly. All right, now just pause right there. Everybody comes together. We get it. 
We're going to do it. We're formally declaring it. We're wholly committed to it. This is heart and soul all in. This is their, with all their heart and soul. We're doing it seriously with accountability and consequences, and we're doing it passionately. We're excited. We're doing this hopefully. We're doing it joyfully. It's not a burden. It's not like, man, I got to do this. No, this is with hope-filled expectation. And this is with earnest desire. The word earnestly, with all their heart. I mean, this is the enthusiasm that says, sign me up. Let's celebrate because the blessing of God and the benefits of God and the glory of God is our future. And we're excited by faith. So it gets after it heart is a passionate to commit to God heart, joyfully, hopefully, with great expectation. And watch the end of 15. So the Lord gave, well, first of all, verse 15 says, and he let them find him. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. You know how long that rest lasted? That lasted 20 years. 10 years, and then 20 years. An encounter in the middle, million man army defeated them. God gets put on display. The prophet of God shows up and says, hey, don't miss this. Here's what you need to do to keep on enjoying this. Asa and the people of God go, get that. We're going to seek God diligently. We're going to seek God desperately. We're going to seek God Biblically, we're going to seek God courageously. We're going to seek God exclusively. We're going to worship God lavishly. We're going to commit our heart to God formally. We're going to communicate this seriously. And we're going to celebrate passionately because the God who was just on display will continue to be on display. Because that God, his eyes search throughout the whole earth for the person whose heart is completely his. And when he finds such a person, he shows himself strong to support them, to reveal his unrivaled glory and goodness. This heart is a heart that attracts the bounty and bigness of God. And that's what people need to see. Pagan worshipers will defect to that. Enemies of God will fear a God like that. Last thing I'll say today, because we're out of time, it's a get rid of it heart. Because seeking God is a radical seeking of God, because it's a radically committed to getting rid of the things that compete with God. I just want you to look in closing at verses, verse 16. And he also, this is a reference to Asa, he also removed Maka, the mother of King Asa. Now, in the Hebrew language, mother and grandmother are synonymous, same, same word. So context tells you whether it's mother or grandmother. This is actually his grandmother. Maka was the mother of Abijam. And this is his grandmother. He also removed Maka, the mother slash grandmother of King Asa from the position of queen mother because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah. That's a 
pagan idol. And Asa cut down her horrid image. Watch the words. Cut it down, crushed it, and burned it. And the book Kidron. Listen, here's a heart that's completely his. It's a let's get rid of any competition to God. It's a heart that ruthlessly throws out and cleans out all barriers to seeking God and removes all competitors who promote things that compete with God, even family members and friends, special friends. Listen, this is a do what it takes to remove the competition that'll corrupt a heart that is completely his. It's my grandmother. I'm going to remove her. And I'm going to crush the things that are a part of the world she promotes because it competes with a God who is worthy of exclusive worship, honor, and trust. It removes all the old stuff. It removes all the old places. And it removes the old people. And I don't mean old as in grandma mold. I mean old people related to the old ways, the pagan ways. Cornerstone. There needs to be house cleaning when it comes to dealing with the things that compete with a God who alone is worthy to be worshipped. An idol is anything that takes preference or priority over God. And that means an inventory of the stuff that competes, of the places that promote competition and a divided heart and the people. No matter how long they've been in relationship with you or how special they are to you. It's a get rid of it heart that promotes any competition to the king of everything. You're going to see this in Second Chronicles 19 when Jehu, the, the prophet, says to Jehoshaphat, There is some good in you, for you've removed the Ashereth from the land and you have set your heart to seek God. Samuel confronting the people of God, remove the foreign gods in the Ashereth. This is 1 Samuel 7. Remove the foreign gods and Ashereth from among you. Direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. That's what it means to have a completely his heart. No competition. Well, I'm out of time today, and I hope that's been a challenge and an encouragement to you. A get after it heart and a get rid of it heart promotes the blessing of God who is searching for those whose heart is completely his. And I pray that will encourage you so that you can be the kind of Christian that puts God on display so that people see him in a way that reveals a compelling interest in him. Father, I thank you this morning for the treasure of your word and the revelation and the inspiration that it brings. This is such a a vivid example of, of a man who validated a verse that many of us know, but haven't considered its import and weight, peace, prosperity, productivity, blessing and influence, the product of a heart that seeks God in the ways that honor him and acts in a way that reflects that conviction. That's my prayer for us all. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Cornerstone, I hope you have a great week. God willing, I'll be back with you next week. And I look forward to uh, opening God's word with you again. God bless you. I miss you and I love you.